I think one of the beautiful things I've ever saw is in the fall of the year when I look on the technique of the mountains and see the beauty of all of the different colors of the trees. And I'm riding along with people, I say, look yonder. Yonder's the most beautiful scene that I've ever saw. I see the technique color of the mountains. Wonder how long it'll last. We wonder how long we can hold our peace. We wonder how long we can sit and look and watch the greediness of people. For an almighty dog come in and destroy all things that was created for man. So there's a road on the eastern side of my state, West Virginia, in a place called Pocahontas County. And this road, Route 219, winds all the way from Buffalo, New York, to Rich Creek, Virginia. It traces this original boundary line between the state of Virginia and what was originally called West Augusta, the place that I now call Holton, known as West Virginia. Originally, our land was inhabited by the Seneca and the Cherokee tribes of the original peoples, and and the tensions between the settlers of Virginia and the inhabitants of this land were, were really, really fierce. In 1763, King George III issued this proclamation that this, this road, this boundary line, Route 219, would serve as the clear dividing line between, quote, the rightful English settlement in Virginia, so east of the road was to be the king's territory, and what he called the wilds west of that road. The wilds of West Augusta. That's where I live now. Any of the people, um, Euro- Europeans who had settled in these wilds, were expected to return east, and the natives were expected to stay off of the king's land. From the upper class in the Virginia lowlands, West Augusta was considered to be, as one writer says, steep and craggy mountainsides unsuitable for farming, or what they called trash land. And yet there were the mountain people, my own ancestors, the the Scotch-Irish who had left Europe to seek opportunity. They were mostly um, poor, criminal disenfranchised, and they were trying to make a life in the middle of this this just treacherously oppressive class system. Uh, they, they were seen as, you know this phrase, they were seen as white trash, right? Often indentured servants brought from Europe to work off their debts as the poverty class until they could be freed and then sent to the wilds of West Augusta. For these mountain people, the land of West Augusta looked really good. They loved it. And so they chose to stay in what would eventually become West Virginia. They were strong. They were fierce. They were resilient, tenacious. In fact, George Washington once said about the hearts of these mountain people, this is his quote, he said, leave me but a banner to plant upon the mountains of West Augusta, and I will gather around me the men who will lift our bleeding country from the dust and set her free. What an incredible statement about my people. This is the heart and the heritage of the West Virginia where I grew up. 
the heart and heritage of a fierce passion that lives in Appalachia. Not Appalachia, not Appalachia, Appalachia. I love the place where I live. But this place where I live is not without its challenges either. Um, a, a bit more history. Years before the Civil War, on October 16, 1859, a, a man named John Brown crept into Harper's Ferry, which was then part of Virginia, where the Shenandoah and the Potomac Rivers would meet. He, he was an abolitionist, and he was willing to take this violent path to end the enslavement of African Americans in the U.S. His plan was to ultimately arm enslaved men in the South and have them fight for freedom. And so John Brown and his men captured this city, cut off the railroad bridges, and secured this federal arsenal of weapons. But, but soon he was surrounded by these federal troops, and the troops were led by um, Lieutenant Colonel, you might know this name, Robert E. Lee. And so arrested, tried for treason, and, and hanged, John Brown's raid contributed greatly to the coming of the Civil War to the U.S. And without that war, my state, the state of West Virginia, would probably never have been created. I'm, I'm proud of that. But there's also this, this painful part of our history as a state. The, the Willie Amendment freed no slaves when West Virginia became a state. The first slaves to be freed um, everybody wants to tell our story as 1863 West Virginia became a state because we were standing against slavery in the Civil War. And, but the first slaves to be free because of the Willie Amendment would never have been freed until at least 1867. There was no provision for freedom for any slave over 21 years of age. It just wasn't going to happen. It, as Part of the census of 1860, the Willie Amendment would have left at least 40% of West Virginia slaves unemancipated, over 6,000 slaves. Many of those that were enslaved and under the age of 21 would have served as much as 20 years in slavery. You see, the phrasing of this amendment also created a window of two weeks during which the children of slaves born between June 20th, 1863, and July 4th, 1863, would be born into slavery. We were a state, but they were not completely free. On April 20th, 1863, the Willie Amendment was approved by public vote. President Lincoln issued a proclamation, a proclamation that West Virginia had met all the requirements and would become a state on June 20th, 1863. So in anticipation of the passage of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the Wheeling Legislature passed a bill ending slavery in West Virginia on February 3rd, 1865. And even so, the impact of that Legislative Emancipation Act was not immediately understood. The Clarksburg Weekly National Telegraph newspaper was still printing fugitive slave ads in to March. I'm not proud of these things. My land struggles even today. West Virginia is ranked 44th for overall physical health in our country, 48th for quality of care. We have the second lowest average annual income 
in the country. We pay the eighth highest health insurance premiums under the Affordable Care Act. We consistently show the worst mental health rates of any state in our country and yet rank 48th for access to mental health services. White males in my state are committing suicide at a rate of almost, listen to this, three times the national average. And we have the lowest number of graduating seniors that went to college last year. We've long been a state with enormous natural resource potential. And, and because of the incredible amounts of extraction that take place here, oil and coal and gas, all these things, these profiting corporations that don't even reside within our state coming in and taking these resources, the relationship of the people of West Virginia and the broader United States of America, America is often compared to that of a colonized people and their colonizers. Let me kind of make this personal. One of the earliest jokes that I remember hearing in grade school involved both the Ku Klux Klan and the N-word. It, it's the very first joke I remember hearing. I laughed. I had absolutely no idea why the joke was supposed to be funny. I, I didn't. But I laughed with my friends because they laughed. It was the same experience I had listening to jokes about sex in middle school. I didn't get them, but the pressure of not being left out of the humor was enough to make me laugh along with the crowd. In Sunday school, I remember our pastor's son always trying to stump the teacher and asking where black people came from. To my adolescent brain, the answer seemed educated as he described slavery emerging from the curse of Ham given by his father Noah, who would tell his son he would be a slave as well as all his people. And little did I know at that age that this was such poorly informed theology being wielded by someone tasked with influencing us as the youth of this church. No one ever stopped to ask the question, where did the white people come from? What do we even mean? when we say white. A friend of mine a few years ago in our, in our small town here in the central part of West Virginia returned home after a day at work to find propaganda from the Ku Klux Klan sitting on his front porch. And my friend who's white is raising his African-American son in our community. This is the heart and the heritage of the West Virginia where I grew up, the heart and heritage of the fierce passion that lives in Appalachia and the darkness of a land that is broken by racial sin and the supremacy of what we call whiteness. On January 6th, 2021, I watched, like you, the insurrection taking place in Washington, D.C., and I shared earlier this season in Better Stories when I heard our president at the time utter the words to the protesters that day, go home, we love you, you're very special, I know how you feel, that is the quote. I posted that quote side by side with something that he had said regarding the Black Lives Matter protests in May of 2020, months earlier, where he said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. I posted those quotes with a simple caption suggesting that we must at least empathize with our brothers and our sisters of color as we watch the counter responses to such counter crowds. We must grieve with the hurt and understand the pain that comes with systems of white supremacy. 
less than 24 hours later, almost to the minute, I had two messages come into my phone based on that post. The first was from a 15-year-old young man who did not and does not attend our church, saying he really appreciated my voice in these times and how Christianity had been misrepresented for the past several years, and he has hope when pastors like me understand and make an effort to combat those who use religion in the wrong way. And the other message came from a friend who had just ended a term on our church leadership team and served as a mentor for many in our congregation. And he said in his text, I hope you know not everything is about race, and I hope you understand your posts on social media may have just cost you at least half of your congregation. It was hard. The anger felt, the relief felt, the way these things spread and influenced and, and, and pockets within our church, all of that stuff, the toxicity, the unraveling within our culture around these conversations related to race continue to divide us as humans, continue to divide us as churches, continue to divide us as families. Now to be really, really candid, I'm not sure my voice is one that can touch subjects of racial division, of racism, of reconciliation. I don't have answers. I don't have methods or systems. I just don't. I pulled that post. If I'm honest, I pulled that post that caused those texts to come in down off of my social media, maybe because I was afraid of what was happening in that moment to me. Maybe if I'm positive about this, maybe because I wanted to create more dialogue than monologue. And and I've wondered if I failed in that moment as a prophetic pastoral voice or if I was faithful as a pastoral prophetic voice. We live in these screwy times and I don't know the best way forward. And yet there is a better story that I've found in the midst of this journey. I read this just tremendous book and I hope you'll go find it I hope you'll read through it but but it's a book called Gone Home Race and Roots Through Appalachia and and the author this sociologist Carita Brown examines an even more forgotten lens of our Appalachian culture those of the black lives those who lived and worked within the coal towns of Kentucky and West Virginia. And she speaks uh, so eloquently of, of this work of a guy named William Chafe and how he examined the Southern value of civility, right? We talk about the Southern hospitality and this idea of civility. And, and William Chafe, this, this value he says served as, as, and I love this quote, the cornerstone of progressive mystique the cornerstone of progressive mystique, this cultural value of civility that has in the South been perceived as the hallmark of the good, the healthy communal relationships. Think about the Southern front porch, the Southern hospitality, the way that we are welcomed by civil, good, kind people. We are civil, and because of that, we keep our civilizations going. But Carita Brown challenges this, though. She she considers this idea of civility for black people in just for instance harlan county kentucky and she says civility in those places in those cold towns of appalachia was simply knowing and staying in one's place knowing and staying in one's place 
When I began to plant the church that I lead, my wife and I were invited to a church planter training where we fell in love with a body of believers that didn't look like us, that didn't sound like us. During the first day of church planter training, we sat at a table with Russian immigrant planters who invited us that evening for a sauna and vodka. Now, I'm an introvert, so we didn't go, and I so regret it. Behind us in that same training were an African-American couple planting in the heart of urban New York City. To their left were a Korean friend planting outside of Dallas, Texas. And then there was us, this young white couple from North Central West Virginia. I came into this church planting journey because I felt called back home to my own place, this small, tiny town of Buchanan, West Virginia. But I felt called to that place with the words of Jeremiah 29, where the prophet in a message from God tells the people of God in exile to build houses, to settle down, to plant gardens, eat what they produce, to get married, have sons and daughters, find wives for your children, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have children. He says, increase in number there, don't decrease. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I felt called to the heart and the heritage of the West Virginia where I grew up. The heart and the heritage of the fierce passion that lives in Appalachia. But I also felt called to my own place, and please understand this, to call my place out of its place. My journey over the past 10 years has been a journey, at least in part, towards racial justice. It's been a journey of ambassadorship and translation, translating the language of reconciliation to West Virginia and translating West Virginia to a broader context. It's been a journey where many other women and men as friends and mentors have painted for me a richer kingdom of God, a kingdom that says challenge is worth it, a kingdom that in many ways feels a little bit like the wilds of Appalachia. Perhaps that's why John Denver called West Virginia almost heaven. You see, the thing about my homeland is that its fierceness cannot be tamed. Corita Brown described our land with these powerful words. She said, and I quote, from the indigenous peoples who girded their loins as they bore witness to their own genocide, refusing to leave their land dead or alive. To the perpetrators, the Scotch-Irish frontiersmen who began settling in the Cumberland Plateau, please look these places up on the map, beginning in the 17th century, to King Cole, the paternalistic industry that brought in its own population of European immigrants and southern black refugees, transforming that same native white frontiersman into the invisible and culturally extinct hillbilly to nature, which is now reclaiming the land that was always her own. In this way, Appalachia belongs to no one. Feel the force of her words. Perhaps if we were to think about the work of justice today, the work of challenging the spaces where we find ourselves with racial reconciliation and righteousness, the, the, the spaces where it's uncomfortable, even the predominantly white spaces, perhaps the work of that challenge of justice is simply engaging the untamed 
the uncivilized nature of God's kingdom. Perhaps the work of justice is moving with the kingdom of God to be faithful in exile, to settle down, to plant gardens, to marry and have sons and daughters, and to seek the welfare of the cities where we find ourselves. But it is, and do not miss this, this is my better story. It is not to be civil. It is to be faithful. Faithful to a kingdom that advances against the powers of hell and willingly fights for freedom, for justice, and for the hope of Jesus' grace to fill every space. My better story is that I know that the wreckage I've lived and I'm living through right now, the wreckage of calling people to empathize in a world where empathy is cast aside is costly. It's painful. It's messy. And I have failed along the way, but it is this work. It is right. It is true. And it is beautiful. But it's not always civil. May we live these better stories. I think one of the beautiful things I've ever saw is in the fall of the year when I look on the technic of the mountains and see the beauty of all of the different colors of the trees. And I'm riding along with people, I say, look yonder. Yonder's the most beautiful scene that I've ever saw. I see the technic color of the mountains. That falls upon the ear Are those who love Kentucky soil And holds that state so dear Its people working far away And those who love to 